standing, and I'd love for us to stand together for a moment of just prayer for our world. Um, I want to just mention something as we go to prayer, um, and not just prayer for our world, but prayer for our posture and our place in it. You know, as believers, we know this, that there is so much evil and injustice that happens every week on this planet all over the place. And we've watched as our friends in Lebanon uh, have suffered through uh, what will turn into a famine and all sorts of suffering. We watch in our country as there's so much pain, so much anger related right now to race. If ever there was a time for God's people to be the ones who were quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry, I, I think now is that time. And I just want to encourage and challenge us. This would be a good time in our country to be people who embody the empathy that God has for us every day of our life. God's given us this secure identity in Christ that we talked about last week, that, that we never have anything to earn. And because we are secure, we can listen to people. We can have empathy for those who are hurting. And we can step into how God leads us in his kingdom work. And I just, I, I just would ask if you would join me. And can we pray together for our presence in this broken world? So God, we come to you and we pray in the words of he who saves us. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, in the borders of this nation, may your kingdom come on earth in America as it is in heaven. God, in the state of Wisconsin, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in Colorado Springs, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask uh, for us as your people, would you make us so secure in your love for us, so confident that we belong to you, that we are able to listen well to those who are hurting? God, would our security with you Give us empathy for others. Lord, we confess our brokenness. We confess our sinfulness. We confess that we are constantly breaking and messing up what you've given us. And so, God, we just ask for mercy. Please, mercy. We pray for healing between the ethnic groups that make up this nation. We pray for justice. We pray for mercy that you would have the grace to show us a way forward. And God, we so desperately want to meet you every day, but especially today. And so as we turn to your scriptures, would you give us security in our identity in Christ? Would you give us victory over the brokenness that is inside of us? Would you give us a new vision for your kingdom that is constantly advancing? And will you lead us to partner well together as brothers and sisters in your family? In your name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. Uh, 
I'm excited about today. I've had it circled on my calendar for a while because we are going to jump in to the book of James today. We're going to dive into it, although truthfully, we're not really going to dive into it. We're just going to kind of dip our toe into the book of James and try to orient ourselves to what we're going to be looking at over these next few months this fall. I think we're going to, what we're going to discover is, man, this book is as relevant today as it has ever been, maybe even more so, we will discover together. Uh, what I want to suggest is the starting place for this series today, and this honestly is probably a pretty good ending place. When we get to November and we're wrapping this up, this is probably the place we'll end too, but it certainly is the starting place, and it's simply this truth. When you find faith in Jesus, you need a guide. You need guidance. When you find faith in Jesus, you need a guide, and I don't mean that to insult you in any way. I think you are incredibly smart, and this is true. There are all sorts of things you can figure out on your own, but faith in Jesus is not one of them. It was never intended to be. Faith in Jesus was intended to be collaborative. It's something where we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to learn from each other. We're supposed to listen to each other. And we're supposed to receive guidance from each other. The book of James exists for that reason. There's a bunch of people who had faith in Jesus. And uh, they, they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And they were trying to follow him. And for some of them, that was all they knew. They didn't know much else. And so James was stepping into this moment, trying to offer them a sort of guidance of, hey, here's maybe what it means for your life. And that's what we're going to do with him this fall. Because if you find faith in Jesus, you need a guide. So we're going to dive into the guidance that he gives, but this is something we have to say up front, is there's an assumption behind what James is going to, the guidance that he is going to give that we have to kind of get out of the way. He doesn't state it explicitly, but James is assuming that we have found faith in Jesus. James is assuming that we believe in Jesus Christ. And so before we get into this book, we just kind of need to start there with just the simple question of faith. And I want to ask a simple question of faith that you may not have thought about for years, but it's just this question. Why do you have faith that Jesus is who he said he is? Why do you have faith that he is who he says he is? And if you don't yet, I mean, just like hear me, I, well, how courageous to, to check out a church and to try to figure that journey out. I think there's a really healthy place to discover what faith in Jesus is all about. Please ask us, to reach out to us. We'd love to talk about that. But if you do have faith in Jesus, I want you to try to connect to what was that core reason, that core thing that like clinched the deal for you, the thing that made you say yes to Jesus instead of like, you know, uh, Islam or atheism or just some other way of thinking about spirituality. Why do you have faith that Jesus is who he said he is? Can I share my answer? I don't know if I've ever done that at this church. I mean, I've been here a long time. Maybe I have. But I don't recall ever doing that. So uh, is that okay if I share my answer? And one person. Awesome. Um, no, uh, for what it's worth, I might wax philosophical for a minute here, but I, I just, I, I thought it would be worth starting with why I answer that question the way that I do. There was a time uh, where I tried, like genuinely so, um, to be uh, like an atheist, um, where I thought, maybe, this is pretty far-fetched, 
it's maybe all just made up fairy tales and we should all find something better to do. Um, and I kind of entertained that and kind of went down that road a little bit. And, but there was just something about it. I couldn't make that work and still be intellectually honest. And, and the reason why is just a very simple progression of just, uh, just observations, I guess, or just things that I, I've seen to be true. Um, it starts with this simple observation. I believe that spirit exists, if that makes sense, like spiritual stuff. Like I believe that it actually exists. I can't shake that. I cannot shake this belief that the physical world is not all there is. Uh, there, there must be a spiritual world. And I look at people and I say, and the, the people who say, listen, no, it's all just biology and it's all just neurons in our brains and that's all there is and everything can be explained with that. And I marvel, like, gen, I'm not making fun, I genuinely marvel at that because I just cannot get there. I cannot shake the reality that there is more to, than just what we see to this world. And a big part of that reason, the reason I can't shake that reality um, this may sound weird, but it's, it's because I've seen good in the world. Like I've seen genuine good in the world. And you know, please don't get me wrong, um, I'm sure we would all agree the world is just awful all the time, right? It's just like evil, people are selfish, it's just horrible, and it's awful. And that never surprises me. The wickedness of the world or the evil of the world never surprises me. But what never ceases to surprise me is the presence of good in the world. I mean, think about it. To me, the most unexplainable phenomena in all of the universe is the presence of selfless love between humans. I cannot wrap my head around it, that it would just, like, there would just be some biological reason, this idea that somebody would lay down their life for a stranger. And I've seen some awful things in, in the world. And, and like, like that has never surprised me, but that somebody would step into that to try to better somebody else's life for no reason except that they love that person. I, th there is no, it makes no biological sense to me. I've heard all the explanations. I, I think there's no scientific explanation that holds up to that. The, if the physical world is all there is, there would be no rational reason for selfless love. And so for me, I look at that and I say, hey, there has to be more than just the physical world. So the question is not one of spirituality or no spirituality, because the presence of good always defeats my attempts at atheism. For me, the question is, what then is the true framework of spirituality? And because I, selfless love is the invader into our cold mechanical universe, that to me would indicate that the true framework of spirituality has to be rooted in love and goodness. And so I don't know if this makes sense, but this is a big thing in my heart. That, that, like the concept that a good God is behind it all is not thwarted for me by the presence of evil. I know it is for some people. For me, it's not thwarted by the presence of evil, but it is confirmed by the fact that the world is not just evil because that's what I would expect if all there is is what we see. 
And so just intellectually, you know, for me, it's, it's no stretch to suspect that, the, that there is some good and loving God behind it because that's the anomaly and that's what every single time leads me to Jesus. If we believe that there is a God out there and that God is good and that God is loving and we are not alone, there is no framework of spirituality with a more compelling figure than Jesus Christ. And the fact that he describes himself as sent from God so that we could know God, so that we could experience goodness and the abundant life, that to me is such a stunning claim. Not to mention the fact, that, like the evidence behind the fact that he lived and that he died and that he rose again. I mean, we have to acknowledge he is the most examined figure in all of history. And he stood up to the scrutiny and then you read his words and he talks about a kingdom of goodness, a kingdom of love where justice and mercy reign and it's underneath the reality that we see and it's constantly breaking through and there's something in my spirit that just comes alive at those words and I cannot believe that he might be the one. He might actually know the true nature of reality and that is far bigger than what we see. And I see his incredible power that we read about in the scriptures, but paired with this genuine selfless love. And at the end of the day, I cannot help but conclude, surely he is the son of the living God. And that, in a nutshell, or maybe not a nutshell, but that, that's why I believe in him. I just... And I will until the day I die. And don't get me wrong, I have lots of doubts, and we all struggle with doubt all the time. But I just cannot shake my faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That there's more than what we see and that he knows. And that's what leads me into the scriptures again and again. Uh, that's what makes me just curious to say, like, if he actually is God, if Jesus actually is, like, the God behind the universe embodied in human form, then I so desperately want to know what that means for me. That is why the book of James was written. Because some people had faith in Jesus and they needed a little bit of guidance to understand what in the world does that mean for me that Jesus is God and he's the only son of God. James was written to people who knew Jesus was God and many of them did not know much more than that. And so in steps James. And he's trying to give them some clarity and some guidance on what it means for their faith. Now, James was written by uh, a man named James, um, obviously, or maybe not obviously. There's a lot of Jameses in the Bible. So just to clarify, the James that we believe wrote the letter James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, so not the James the disciple, but out of curiosity, how many of you in the room have a brother? Would you raise your hand up high? Okay, that might be the majority of the room. I don't know. Um, what would it take for you to be convinced that your brother is God? What would it take? I have two brothers. I'm not sure you could convince me. <laughs> I could tell you some stories. I just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they would have, it would be amazing what they would have to do to convince me that in fact that they were God. And they would have to do some explaining because I have some questions, right? That was kind of true for James. 
We read in the New Testament, uh, John 7 tells us there's this time where James was just like, a, he just thought Jesus was his older brother. And he kind of tries to stop what he's doing. He's like, this is just too much. Just kind of come home. And he doesn't actually believe at first. And then we don't totally know the whole story, but there's something that happens in his life where he becomes convinced. And Paul tells us just a glimpse of it in 1 Corinthians 15. After James watched Jesus die, and then he, rise, he rises from the dead. He appears one-on-one -on -one to his brother James. And we don't know what happened in that conversation, but whatever happened from that point forward, it was clenched. He believed it, that he was totally convinced. And in the next few years, James becomes one of the leaders of the church that lived in Jerusalem. That's where he lived. And so uh, eventually he, he so believes that his brother is God that he's murdered for that belief. And he's martyred for that belief. Now, the, the letter he wrote is uh, probably, there's a little bit of debate, it's probably the first book written in what we call the New Testament. He wrote it about 10 to 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So it's probably around mid-40s AD. I want to tell you kind of what we're doing over the course of this year. So James was written in the, about mid-40s AD. We're going to start here in the fall. We're going to walk through it over the next few months. Then we're going to celebrate Christmas together. And then we're going to come back in the new year and we're going to uh, discover and dive into 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter was was written about 20 years after the book of James. Um, and uh, then after that, we're going to have uh, Lent and Easter and all that sort of stuff. Then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the book of 1 John, which was written about 50 years after James, or about 30 years after 1 Peter. And what's fascinating is when you look at those three books together, you see this incredible progression happen. So James has written around 40 AD to people who have just found faith in Jesus, and he's trying to explain to them, here's maybe what it means for your life. And when you find faith in Jesus, you need that sort of guidance. But that was virtually everyone at 40 AD. Christianity had just started. Like everyone who, who believed in Jesus was like, well, what do we do with this? And so James steps into that moment and says, here's what I think we do with it. First Peter is written years after that. Christianity has already been a thing. And first Peter, Peter's going to write his letter to some people who have had some struggles. They've been walking with Jesus for a little while and life has gotten hard. It's no longer just this small band in Jerusalem, but now it's an actual thing. People have started to notice and there's persecution and there's challenges. And so he is going to write about kind of the grown-up faith for struggling believers. And then 30 years after that, John is going to write his letter like at the very end of his life, around 90 AD. And he's like looking back on this life of faith in Jesus. And he's kind of has this approach, let me just tell you what matters the most. And it's this very seasoned faith, which was incredibly important for the church in about 90 AD. They needed kind of that perspective of what matters most. And so the arc of the study that we're going to do in these books over the course of this year is going to be this progression from like finding faith and figuring out what it means to this very seasoned faith that's focused on what matters most. But we want to start with the book of James, who's trying to guide these new believers into a life that is reflective of their faith. And that's really important to James. He doesn't just want their faith to be a collection of opinions or ideas that they have about the way the world works. He wants their faith to change their life. I love what the theologian N.T. Wright says. He says, if your faith has no verbs, no imperatives, no discipline, no denial, no mercy, and no struggle, then you're probably doing it wrong. James would agree with that. 
James wants us to understand that the guidance that he is going to give us is to embrace the sort of faith that changes your life. That's what this book is about. So with that as a preface, let's dive into James. Uh, Turn to James chapter 1, verse 1. James writes this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. Okay, stop right there. So James, who's the brother of Jesus, he introduces himself, but how does he introduce himself? He introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot that's really interesting about that sentence. Most notable about it is that he has elevated his brother Jesus to equal status with God. That is what he believes about Jesus. He is totally convinced. And uh, that, that is the sort of thing that gets him killed eventually. Now, it's worth noting, though, uh, he, he is the half-brother of Jesus, but he introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, if I was a half-brother of Jesus, I would be wearing that out. Hey, I'm Jonathan, half-brother of Jesus. You know, I mean, everywhere I go, I would be telling people who I am and who I'm related to. That is not how James thinks about this. He says, I am a servant of God. I am a servant of Jesus. And that's what this book is ultimately going to be about. The identity that he has embraced for himself is what he is going to teach us to embrace for ourselves. He thinks this servanthood piece should be the defining quality of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Here's the thing. When you find faith in Jesus, you need a guide. And I think it's worth asking ourselves of anybody that we receive guidance from, if I let that person influence me, what will begin to be true of me? Like, are they qualified to guide me? And what James says is my qualification is not who I'm related to, but it is my servanthood. I think the humans who make the best guides for us spiritually, are humans who have the humility to serve God by serving real people. That's who we should listen to. And I would just say anecdotally, my hunch is I think sometimes we have allowed people to influence us that do not resemble very well servanthood. And they've shaped us in ways where we've begun to resemble them instead of begun begun to resemble servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James says, I am a servant, and if you let me guide you, I'll show you how to live a life of servanthood to Jesus. That's what this book is going to be about. Now, he addresses uh, the, the book to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What that means is he's addressing Jewish believers in Jesus. And uh, at the beginning of this movement, that was virtually everyone who believed in Jesus. They were Jewish religiously. And when he writes this letter, either that means there was not a lot of Gentile believers in that moment, or it could mean that at that time, the church was still kind of teaching Gentiles who had faith to act religiously like Jews. Eventually, this church stops doing that. But there was this time where they thought that's what God wanted, that if you were going to have faith in Jesus, then you probably embraced many of the customs that Jesus embraced religiously. So this letter, we're going to read moments in it where it might be a little reminiscent of parts of the Old Testament for us. 
Like especially the book of Proverbs is the easiest comparison. Proverbs is so focused on living wisely, James is going to focus a lot on that too. Or it might remind you a little bit of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because it's very focused on how should we live in light of the faith that we already have. And what James is arguing for is that our faith, it should change us. It should change the way we live. It's that word victory we talked about last week. The four words we're focused on this week. Victory. After we have the secure identity in Christ that we have nothing to earn. We have no, there's nothing that we do to earn the acceptance of God. He freely gives it. But then after that, we discover a God who has a vision for us to be what we were always created to be. And because he loves us so much, he longs for us to be free from sin. He longs for us to be free from like those unhealthy ways of thinking that just get stuck in our mind. He longs for us to be free from the wounds that we have accumulated over the course of our life. It's victory. He longs for us to have some victory in our life. James is going to write a lot about that victory. He wants us to taste the kingdom personally that Jesus gave his life to. Now, the other fascinating thing he says in verse 1 is he addresses it to the 12 tribes, but he says, in the dispersion. What he means by that is just that they're scattered, and they were specifically scattered outside of Jerusalem, outside of Palestine even. And I, I, I don't know, I just where we're at in this moment, I love reading that. Like, I love reading that this is not the first time that church had to be dispersed, Right? We have people tuning in on the live stream at home. We have people at FH Beer Works. Even in this room, like we're a little dispersed, right? It's just good for my heart to realize that we're not the first, that that happens to the church. It happened right away to the church. And you know what? The church was just fine. It was better than fine. I just need to hear that sometimes. That the, the dispersion, like it animated the church and the kingdom of God used the dispersion of the people of God and amazing things happened because of it. And so it's hard for me to complain about the dispersion that we are experiencing here when I read this in the scriptures and I'm like, oh yeah, we're just fine. In fact, God's probably going to use it in some sort of way that would be special. Because all these believers, they were dispersed, but they were united by the shared faith that Jesus really is who he said he was. And they're bound together by the Holy Spirit, and they're ushering in this kingdom of God. We are going to be better than fine. God's church is his church, dispersed or not. So that's verse one. Let's just stop there for today. That's one verse. I felt good about it. I'm optimistic. Next week, we're going to get through more than one verse, uh, but there's no telling. Um, it's just one verse. Um, we were joking earlier. It's kind of like just someone writes you an email, Dear Jonathan, and then you like read that and you're like, okay, I'm good. I'll come back next week and read the rest. Um, that's what we're doing with James. I'm sorry, James. Um, Here's the point, and I think we just need to sit in it today. When you find faith, you need a guide. When you find faith, you need a guide. And if we allow James to be our guide, he is going to show us what it means to embrace this identity as servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to show us how to be this presence of selfless love in the world, like those do-gooders who invade the cold mechanical world with the proof that there's more than just what we see. 
That's what he's going to show us. James is saying, listen, if you let me just shape your faith, if you let me guide you, this will become our identity together. And it doesn't matter how dispersed we are. That identity of servant is unshakable. And so if we could summarize the entire book of James, I think it's just basically this. Our faith in Jesus should lead us to a new sort of life of servanthood. That's what he's going to teach us over the course of this fall. So here's what I want to leave you with today. I started with the question, why do you have faith that Jesus is who he said he is? It's a good question. I think maybe a better question for some of us is this. If you have faith, are you ready for your faith in Jesus to change everything? If you have faith, are you ready for your faith in Jesus to change everything? Are you ready for your life to be reoriented behind this whole idea of serving Jesus and his divine project of the kingdom? Because what we uh, understand from James is that what he concluded at some point is my brother is actually God. And if that is true, then everything has changed for me. And I'm no longer just James, but I'm a servant of God. Have you concluded the same sort of thing? If you have, man, James is going to be an incredibly helpful guide. And if you haven't, you're just kind of, oh, I have some opinions about Jesus. James is going to wear you out. He is going to frustrate you. He is going to challenge you because he is not going to accept any other identity. He's not going to accept that you're a conservative or you're a progressive or that you're an American. He's not going to accept that you're a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. He's not going to accept those as your primary identity because he believes his brother was God. And he is going to push us and he's going to challenge us until we believe it so strongly that our primary identity is servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to believe in him like James did? Because he is coming for all of our other false identities. He's convinced his half-brother is actually God. And James, he's not asking us to have a stronger opinion about Jesus. That's not what he's asking. He is asking us to embrace an identity that is a way of life and to step into that as your primary focus for the rest of your life. That is the nature of the faith that he had in his brother. And with his help, we will have the same. Let me pray for us. So God, we come to you in faith. Um, and what we mean, Lord, is not that we think certain thoughts about you. But what we mean is we come to you in faith and we are ready for you to change us. We are ready for our life to be reoriented behind this idea that you are actually God and that it actually means something for us. Lord, would you help us over the course of this fall just to open up our fists that are clenched around those false identities that we hang on to as if they're life And into our open hands, Lord, would you place this new identity as servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the ways you reveal yourself to James and to us. We trust you, Lord. Amen.